0: Good morning. Great to be with you all. Thanks for being here um, as a part of this gathering. We're going to do what we do each Sunday now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14, whatever way you access the Scriptures, uh, Bible app, whatever, when you found that, if you'd stand together with me, we'll read this passage. As Kent was mentioning, the context, of course, as I know you'll remember from the passage that Dave Ennis preached back in November (laughs) when we were last in Matthew series, uh, Transfiguration, this great revelation of Christ, entrance into the presence of the Father, powerfully transforming uh, moments, and then to the place where when it's completed, if you look at verse 9, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus says, Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So there's this kind of completion, they, they, they're coming down from the mountain, and now that's where we're picking up our passage today. Matthew says this, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, this is Jesus, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly or from that hour. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 21, which will be in most of your footnotes, Jesus goes on to say, but this kind comes out, uh, never comes out except by prayer and fasting. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, we need you. Uh, We ask you now to illumine the preaching of your word, to accomplish the good purpose that you have in sending it out in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. As I reflect back on my family and kind of some of our favorite experiences growing up, One that stands out to me is bedtime stories. Do you do this if you have kids? Kind of the bedtime story thing. This is where, you know, Sarah and I, we would tuck the girls into bed and then, you know, kind of read them kind of one last story as the night ended. And of course, yeah, the material that we read them changed over the years from the time the practice began until it was no longer required. But um, while bedtime stories were still a thing, that was still, you know, in operation, if I could say it that way, one series of books I remember us all loving. Um, uh, coming together was the series, And Then It Happened. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read these stories to your kids. It's a collection of, each book is a collection of short stories from Canadian authors Laura and Michael Wade um, that follows the story of these three young friends, Gordon, Michael, and Paolo. Um, One story from this series that stood out in particular, which I loved, um, was a story called Bear Day. Where one of the boys gets the idea to fashion a device that will make bear prints in the dirt so they can, like, stamp prints of a bear into the dirt, which the boys then strategically place around town in order to create all kinds of panic, actually shut down school for a day, which was actually their ultimate goal. And all while, you know, police and conservation officers are looking for this dangerous animal they think is roaming the streets of the town. It's hilarious. Uh, I'm not going to ruin it for you if any of you uh parents are you still do bedtime stories i got one of the volumes here in my office come see me afterwards you can borrow it um but just if you can imagine yourself in the circumstances of this story for a moment like if you were there while this is happening one of the things you'd likely notice very quickly was that while the majority of the town was in an uproar all right they're they're fearful they're panicked they're desperate the three people not experiencing even a moment of fear or panic It's going to be those boys, right? Gordon, Michael, and Paolo. Why? Because, well, we could say they have important insider information uh, that allows them to have confidence that no matter how desperate the situation looks for everyone else, everything's going to work out just fine in the end. And I bring it up as we continue or return to our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel today, Kingdom Come, because of something that I noticed in my study of this passage this past week that I don't think I've ever seen before. For whenever you're studying any passage of the Bible, and this is helpful knowledge if you just want to continue to grow and deepen in your own uh, ability to read and study God's Word, whenever you're studying any passage, it's helpful to just kind of ask basic questions of the text. Simple who, what, when, where, why kind of questions that kind of leads you into understanding the passage better. And that who question in particular is going to be helpful here to ask, like, who are the people? In this story? Who are the the cast of characters involved in the action of this story? Because even answering just a basic question like that can actually bring some really cool insights from the passage, which maybe you wouldn't have got otherwise. So, I mean, that's the case here, surprise, uh, in this passage. So let's do this together. Just ask ourselves who are the people involved in this passage from uh, Matthew's gospel today? We've got Jesus. Yeah, he tends to show up in most of the gospel accounts, Jesus' disciples you've got this man and his son, and then the surrounding crowds, right? Those are the people who are there. Mark's gospel, which tells this same account, actually goes into a lot more detail than Matthew does here. He tells us there's also some religious rulers there who are kind of involved in the action, mostly just critiquing the whole situation. But now, okay, now here's the thing I never saw before. When you look at that list of characters, you see that all of them, are affected by this situation that Jesus encounters the moment he gets down from the mountain in some way, right? They're all affected in some way by what's going on. Jesus is affected by the faithlessness of this generation. Uh, The father is affected by his son being afflicted by this demon. Uh, The disciples, they're affected by the fact that they can't cast out this demon from this child. And I guess, you know, you could say the crowds and the religious rulers, they're kind of concerned observers in the whole thing. But regardless, like everyone, everyone's experiencing either desperation, discouragement, disappointment, something going on because of this situation. Everyone is, except three people. You know who it is? Peter, James, and John. The three disciples that Jesus had brought up with him to the mountain where they saw him transfigured. These three are also present this whole time throughout the action of the story. But notice, not once... Do we hear about any desperation, discouragement, disappointment from them? Why? Why not? And I'm going to just, will fully acknowledge to you right now, this is an argument from silence, literally, because they don't say anything. Um, but my strong hunch is that the reason we don't hear anything from them, the reason they can respond differently than everyone else in this situation, is because just like Gordon, Michael, and Paulo. They have now important insider information as well based on what they just experienced up on the mountain, which gave them confidence, which gave them faith that no matter how bad the situation looked to everyone else, everything was going to work out just fine in the end. It looks really bad. It looks like it's going to be terrible. I, I, I think Jesus has got this. And that's what I want to talk with you about for just a minute. This morning, as we look at this passage, like, how to develop a faith like that in these as well as countless other situations that we encounter in life. Uh, de- kind of developing or maintaining faith, as you can see from the title of this message, after the mountaintop. What does it look like to have faith after the mountaintop? Because that's the thing, right? Faith on the mountaintop is easy. That's, that's the part we love. We, we all love faith on the mountaintop. Those mountaintop experiences in our faith where either it's a time in personal prayer Corporate worship, whatever it is, and and it's just like God just feels so incredibly close to you in that moment. Every uh, lyric of the song, every insight from the Bible, feels like it's speaking directly to you. Uh, um, the noise and the distraction all around you just feels strangely hushed, and, and the weight of all you're carrying just feels lifted. And and for that moment, all you can hear and see is Jesus. We we love those moments. And it's easy to have faith in those moments. But if you've been a Christian for even more than five minutes, what you know is that that's not the no- those are not the norm of our everyday faith experience, are they? Now, if anything, those are the exception to the norm. And the circumstances that cause us to feel desperate, discouraged, and disappointed, those are our more constant companions this side of heaven. Yeah, like I said, although Peter, James, and John, they're in the midst of the very same circumstances as everyone else, it's as though three, these three disciples are able to transfer this experience that they'd had up on the mountain into their present circumstance in such a way that they're able to kind of... It, it replaces desperation with confidence. It replaces their discouragement or disappointment with faith. Which I don't know about you, that sounds pretty good to me. I, I'd sign up for that if, uh, if I can get have a faith like that in these moments. And so that's what I want to look at from our passage. I want to learn to try to help us develop this ability in our own lives. And to do that, I want to look at our passage today by kind of unpacking the different experiences that these various different players in the story have. I want to talk about the way that the father looked to Jesus in the midst of his de- desperation. I want to talk about the way the disciples ultimately looked to themselves in the midst of their trial, and then we'll close this morning by looking at the way Jesus looked to the Father as He endured His difficult path to the cross. Just those three things, looking to Jesus, looking to self, and then looking to the Father. So if you closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to this passage? Follow along as we go through this, as we look at positive and negative examples of what it means and what it looks like to maintain faith after the mountaintop. Okay, so let's look first of all at the experience of this father with the demon-oppressed child, and we'll talk about looking to Jesus. That's the first thing here, looking to Jesus. So as we just read, Jesus and his inner circle of disciples, they've just come down from this epic mountaintop experience, and the second they get down, the second they're complete with this wonderful, glorious experience with God the Father, there's conflict already, <laughs> which how many of you would already be like, yep, amen, that's exactly how it seems to go so often. Right away, we're into conflict. So, uh, and, and, and yet, although Matthew only lists spiritual conflict, uh, the, the child is being oppressed by this conflict, uh, demon and the, the disciples are trying to fight this or cast out this demon mark who as i mentioned earlier gives us more context more content about what's going on says there's also a conflict going on between jesus remaining nine disciples and some of the religious rulers they're they're, they're having their own argument likely over exorcism technique uh, one saying "Well, the reason it's not working is because you're not doing this and they're like no jesus told us this and fighting amongst each other and yet in the midst of all this conflict Here remains this father with a a demon-oppressed son, just desperate to find anyone who can help his son. Now, I know from our modern 21st century perspective, we can often uh, smile or or wink at the pre-scientific understanding of uh, first-century people, uh, that they would believe that what we now know as a medical condition called epilepsy had something to do with demonic oppression. And in truth, the word, the Greek word that's used to translate has seizures there in verse 15 is a rare word that actually means affected by the moon. Based on the belief that they had at this time that the cycles of the moon was what caused people to have these kind of um, seizure-like behavior. It's actually where we get our modern day word lunatic, this idea that uh, the, the cycles of the moon affect us in these strange ways. But what's important to note is that in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all tell this same story, some version of it, all agree whether epilepsy is a result of demonic oppression or not, this particular case was. This specific case was as a result of a demon. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he's, the father tells Jesus, here we see his son falls into the water and the fire sometimes. Mark's gospel, the father goes on to tell Jesus that when the evil spirit takes hold of his child, it actually throws him into the fire, throws him into the water in order to destroy him. Which, I mean, let's just pause for a second and think about that. Can you even imagine this experience as a parent, what this would be like as a parent? let alone the experience of this child, to see your child suffering, oppressed in this way and not be able to do anything to help them. Think about the the burns and the scars that would be on this child because of those episodes. Think about how many other doctors and, and healers and treatments this father must have tried all with the same failed result. Only now to come to the disciples of this famous healer Jesus who supposedly are able, they have power to cast out evil spirits and even they can't help them. Which understanding that, I think that it helps us understand far better why as Mark's gospel tells us, when the father finally does bring his son to Jesus, all he can, mass, all he can just muster up is a pathetic. But if you can do anything to help us, have compassion on us and, and help us. That's all he's got. I don't know what you think when you read that. It kind of tweaks something in this lotus when we read that. I, I, I think we often though are too quick to judge this man's seemingly faithless request. I mean, if you can do anything. But when you think of the circumstances that he's endured, can you really judge his all but depleted hope that anyone can help? He's tried everything. And that even in his place of desperation, even in his place of despair, he brings his son to Jesus anyway, and only to have Jesus assure him all things are possible to him who believes, that is, who believes in me. All things are possible, leading the Father to cry out that very same prayer that has likely come from every single one of our lips at some point. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I I do, but help my unbelief. I don't know what you think of that prayer either. Um, I don't know why. I've heard certain people over the years kind of throw shade on that prayer. Um, The the, the Father's incomplete, the incomplete nature of his faith and kind of surprised that Jesus would actually respond in a way that would help him when he's coming with this, if you can. I, I don't really believe. Why would Jesus help him anyway? As though we need to come to Jesus perfectly or not at all. I don't understand that. And yet I love the way Tim Keller describes this scene with what I believe is a true understanding of the nature and character of Jesus. When he says this, here's a man who says, I don't have faith. I have all my doubts. I don't have what it takes, but help me. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Why? Because that is... That is, he doesn't bring Jesus his holiness. He doesn't bring Jesus his list of religious accomplishments, his shiny unwavering faith, he simply brings Jesus his helplessness and discovers, although he's never yet had a mountaintop experience with Jesus, he discovers the mountaintop of Jesus' acceptance, his welcome, and the mountaintop experience of deliverance for his son, which could only be found in Jesus. And I think that's the first principle we need to learn from this, whether that's maintaining faith after the mountaintop or, or creating it to begin with is 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 this it's bring jesus your helplessness not your holiness bring him your helplessness not your holiness because maybe it's not a demonically oppressed son who throws himself into the fire that you're dealing with today very likely it isn't and yet i think most of us would agree down from the mountaintop we face all kinds of other circumstances every day in life that lead us to feel just as desperate just as discouraged just as defeated we feel that way all the time. But maybe you think, but I can't come to Jesus like that. Not yet. I can't come like this, so full of doubt, so full of fear, maybe feeling disappointed or angry with him. I can't come like that. I have to have a better attitude. I've got to get a better record. I've got to dry my tears, clean up, and come to him properly. And then he'll grant me an audience. Then, then he'll welcome me. Then he'll help me. And yet, look at this. What, what criteria did this father meet before being drawn up onto the mountaintop of Jesus? What did he bring? Just his helplessness. Or, just, or, or what were the criteria or the entrance requirements that you needed the last time you enjoyed that mountaintop experience, that experience of deep rest or comfort or restoration from Jesus? Was it bringing him a spotless record? Unwavering faith? Or was it just simply in seeking Him, reaching out for Him, bringing Him your need, bringing Him your helplessness and and the I don't even know how much faith I have, but will you just help me? Help my unbelief. Let that past experience inform your present pursuit of Jesus and I believe you'll find your faith in Him maintained or even created as we all live out our experience at the bottom of the mountain every day. Okay, that's the father's experience looking to jesus finding his failing faith restored the next thing i want to look at together here is the other nine disciples response to the trial that they're facing with this father's son so now let's talk about looking to self looking to self and kind of to get us into this next section look at the question that you see the disciples asking jesus there in verse 19 it's a good one maybe it's a question you had yourself why couldn't they cast out the demon afflicting this child. What's going on? Why couldn't they do it? Because if you remember what we looked at all the way back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out his disciples on their first mission, Matthew tells us Jesus had given them, quote, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Luke's gospel tells us they returned from that mission rejoicing that even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name. So it worked. They had it. They had the power to do this. So what gives? What 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 had changed? Why couldn't we cast this out? And and then beyond that, it's kind of challenging to understand because at first the answers Jesus gives as to why they couldn't cast out the demon, in verse 20 and 21 here, they only seem to create more questions. Because, first of all, in telling them their faith was too little. At the beginning of verse 20, Jesus then seems to contradict himself in the rest of the verse when he says, but if you have faith even like the grain of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move from here to there and it'll it'll be moved. Was their faith really smaller than the smallest seed known at that time? Is doing the mighty, mighty works of God truly about having sufficient amount of faith? And if so, how much is that? And does it vary from task to task? Like so many questions created because of Jesus' answer. Or, or, or look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, listed in a footnote, because it's not included in all manuscripts. Jesus says, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Does that literally mean there's different, different kinds of demonic forces, different levels that, that require different, I don't know, potions and spirits in order to deal with? I mean, it makes life and God sound like a video game more than like any kind of true reality that we can actually rely on. But the truth is, there's actually all we need to know in Jesus' answers to their question. All we need to know is right here. So first of all, as it relates to the second answer in verse 21, when Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, Jesus is referring not to a specific kind of demonic force, like saying this, this kind of demon, but spiritual forces of evil in general, as opposed to human enemies. As in, Jesus is simply saying spiritual enemies need to be fought with spiritual weapons, like prayer. This kind can't be fought with human strength, which might lead some of you to ask what? So the disciples didn't pray before they were trying to cast out this demon? Well, according to the passage here, the answer seems to be apparently not. And, and I'll get into what I mean by that specifically as we keep going here, but which leads us to what Jesus is revealed in his first answer to their question about having too little faith to cast out this demon. I think Ray Steadman summarizes this part of Jesus' answer best, noting this. He says, why did they fail? I think it's clear that our Lord put his finger on the basic reason, their lack of faith. But notice something very important. They did not fail because they did not expect anything to happen, because they did. They did believe something was going to happen, and they were surprised when it did not happen. They expected the boy to be delivered. So what was it then? Well, if you think it through, you can see what had happened. They had faith, but it had changed from faith in God to faith in the process that they were following. They thought that if you said the right words, followed the right ritual, that the demon would have to leave. Without their even realizing it, they had transferred their faith from confidence in a God who can act to a formula that can bring it about. R.T. France says it this way, the amount of faith is not the important thing for even the smallest. Like a mustard seed is enough. What matters is the God in whom faith is placed. Which hopefully now helps kind of tie together these pieces. What I was saying about Jesus saying that their faith was too little and how this kind can only come out by prayer. For what is prayer but the cry of helpless creatures to a creator with infinite resources. I don't have what it takes, help. And yet, what happens when even your prayer becomes nothing but rote recitation? And the one you truly begin to have faith in is not God, but yourself. Well, first of all, you're not praying to God anymore. <laughs> and secondly, as we plainly see in the disciples' interaction with his Father and His Son, nothing happens. That's what happens when you do that, nothing authority over evil spirits, ability to heal diseases. That wasn't some superpower that Jesus had endowed his disciples with, which they could now wield completely independently of connection to Jesus. Zefti Bruner says plainly and simply, prayerlessness is powerlessness. Prayerlessness, the, the inability to connect to the power source, is powerlessness. Just think about that now as it relates to your own life and faith. For although, no, these disciples that were still back on the ground at the bottom here, they didn't have the same mountaintop experience as Peter, James, and John. They'd had many other mountaintop-like experiences with Jesus, including returning from their first mission with the experience of powerful demons submitting to them in Jesus' name. And yet over time, in the absence of Jesus' physical presence, it's as though they began to seek to maintain that mountaintop experience with Jesus, not by connecting with God through prayer, through praise, through worship, but instead simply by trying to repeat the actions or patterns that had led to that mountaintop experience the first time. And for you and me today, also in the absence of Jesus' physical presence, talk to me after the service if that's not the case. I'd love to hear about that also living in the absence of Jesus' physical presence as we do, I wonder how many of us find ourselves in the exact same place as these disciples, trying to live out faith after the mountaintop, but doing so in such a way that we've ceased seeking the God who first led us there any longer. And now we're just simply repeating the same actions and patterns we were doing and hoping to find that same result, hoping to find that same mountaintop experience again by doing just the same things again. But do you remember what the professor said to the children at the end of C.S. Lewis's Land, Witch, and the Wardrobe after returning from their own mountaintop experience with Aslan and Narnia? He says, no, 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 I don't think it will be any good trying to go back through the wardrobe door. You won't get into Narnia again by that route. Hey, what's that? Yes, of course you'll get back to Narnia again someday. Once a king of Narnia, always a king of Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. Indeed, don't try to get there at all. It'll happen when you're not looking for it. But you hear me, that's not at all for a moment to suggest that you should abandon spiritual pathways that are presently keeping you deeply rooted and anchored in God, not at all. For those of you who are newer to the Christian faith, those pathways are going to include things like prayer, uh, praise, uh, 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 things like study of God's word, things like uh, taking time in confession and repentance, reflection, These kinds of things, but my point is how you practice those pathways, sometimes called spiritual disciplines, how you practice those things is not gonna look for the same for everyone. Nor is how you practice always gonna look the same. Right? The fact that you had a mountaintop experience when you were reading through Psalm 63 or or singing Chris Tomlin's songs at the top of your lungs in the woods by yourself, and you had this great mountaintop experience, mean that you're always gonna have that same mountaintop experience following that same pathway? Very likely not. And I talk to so many followers of Jesus, struggling in their faith. They're feeling lifeless, joyless, powerless in their their walk with Jesus. Almost invariably, the reason is because they've substituted an actual pursuit of God, trust in Him for the pursuit of a familiar pathway that made them feel a certain way, that brought about a certain result in the past, but no longer does looking to some repeatable action that they can accomplish themselves instead of to the God of the mountaintop. Uh, I got to get back to summer camp because that's where I really meet with God. That's the place where he meets him. And then I come back and, oh, what, I didn't have that experience again. There, there's a thousand things we do that we just try to repeat the action instead of just seeking the God and let him meeting us when he, when he will. But like the professor said to the children, what I say to them and what I'm saying to you right now today is long for the mountaintop, long for it, but don't seek it. Or, or that is, don't seek to create some kind of pale facsimile of it with something that you can, some action you can do yourself. It'll happen when you're not looking for it and very often along different expressions of the pathway than you experienced it the first time. Okay, that's looking to Jesus, looking to self. Last thing I want to look at with you in closing here is, the, is Jesus' practice here of looking to the Father. Looking to the Father. And man, there's so much that we could say about Jesus' practice of looking to the Father, the depth of relationship that he experienced with the Father as well as the Spirit. I think it's the very thing that enabled him to endure this painful, difficult path to the cross. But all I want to point out to you in particular this morning is one kind of last discovery about chapter 17 as a whole that maybe you hadn't considered before either. And it's this. The Mount of Transfiguration was not a mountaintop experience for Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration was not a mountaintop experience for Jesus, at least not the way I've been talking about mountaintop. I mean, it was on a mountaintop, but not the way we've been talking about it here this morning. That is, unlike Peter, James, and John, and like you and like me, seeing that the mountain enveloped by a cloud, Jesus' divine nature revealed, the Father speaking words of love and commendation over his Son, was not a mountaintop experience for Jesus in the sense that he now drew faith and, and strength to enter back into the struggle at the bottom of the mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration was simply a revelation of, to Jesus' disciples of the depth of revelation, uh, uh, sorry, of relationship that Jesus always enjoyed with the Father from eternity past, and that he was now inviting his disciples into. Think about the voice on the mountaintop. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Who is he talking to there? He's not talking to Jesus. He's not talking to Moses and Elijah. He's talking to the disciples which is an interesting idea for us to grasp. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way before because I don't know about you, whenever people talk about mountaintop experiences with Jesus, very often they'll think about Matthew 17. It's kind of like classic text to go to when we talk about mountaintop experiences, which makes sense. It's on a mountaintop. Um, all of those things, that it's a prominent example of that. Um, and certainly, the Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're powerfully transformed by that experience. But sometimes we can kind of lump Jesus into the same crowd with them and, and say that it was also this mountaintop experience for him as though in his transfiguration, Jesus was like Cinderella when you know, the fairy godmother bibbidi-bobbidi-booed her or, 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 or like the beast when in Beauty and the Beast when he's transformed and all this as though that's what's happening to Jesus. And as his divine nature is revealed, he's like, oh, guys, look at me. This, this previously unknown reality that now is revealed to Jesus and he draws strength from him. No, that's not what's going on. If you just look at Jesus' divine identity alone, which he reveals constantly, he knew very clearly, Jesus, the one John tells us in John 1, who was with the Father from the beginning and who was God, often as well as the depth of relationship that you see jesus working to maintain all through his earthly ministry he's often going away to be alone with the father constant communication with him you begin to see the transform the transfiguration was actually far more for the benefit of peter james and john than it was at all for jesus deep connection with god the father through prayer operating in the power of the spirit that was the norm for jesus But considering all that, my question for you this morning in closing is not, so why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you pursuing connection with God the Father with all the passion, perfection, and consistency with which Jesus did? I I think that's a crushing question. Kind of more of a do better, try harder thing, which I don't think really helps anyone or brings about any kind of lasting change in the end. I simply want to ask you to notice. Do you see how that Powerful, intimate access to the Father that Jesus consistently enjoyed himself was something that he was making possible for his disciples, something that he was inviting them into as a result of their relationship with him. But then, yes, as the the, the experience of which then transformed their entire way of seeing the world and difficulties that they faced upon their return. He had invited them into this experience of meeting with the father up on the mountain yes jesus nature is revealed but so is the father the father is revealed to the disciples in this moment and so the question that i actually want to ask you this morning is this does jesus provide that same access to the father for you and for me today no i don't mean taking you up to a literal mountain and hearing the audible voice of god But does Jesus provide that same intimate access to the Father for all who put their faith in Him? Apostle Paul says it this way, Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Hebrews 4 talks about the the confidence with which we can now enter into the very presence of God because of Jesus. Maybe you've never considered that before, but that the transfiguration was actually picturing what happens to us in salvation. That by faith in Jesus, we too are led into the very presence of the Father. I mean, just think about that now. Put this all together. What have we been talking about all morning? We've been talking about what, what, what does it look like? How do we maintain faith after the mountaintop? But if what Paul just said is true, and if the transfiguration is really picturing what happens to us in salvation, how through Jesus we're invited into the very presence of the Father, maybe... Maybe maintaining faith on or off the mountaintop, maybe that's not even the right question. Maybe that's not even the point at the end of the day. Maybe the point is actually instead realizing, believing, and then enjoying the same unhindered access to the Father that we also now have by faith in Jesus whenever we want, whenever we need, whatever the circumstances. We're invited into that same experience as the disciples on the mountaintop an experience that will undoubtedly transform the way we see the world and the difficulties that we all face in the exact same way that it did for peter james and john god help us to do it give us faith help our unbelief lead us again and again into your presence and transform our experience of this life at the bottom of the mountain amen